If you were here last week, last week we kind of did a time where we just, like, just did music and just worshiped the Lord, and it was a, a, good, uh, a good, good time, if you ask me. And bef- the week before that, we kind of started this new series where we're really diving into looking at the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and we're doing it by kind of looking at some of the lesser-known characters so, uh, that surround the story. And so last time we kind of talked about the Jewish leaders, and today we're going to kind of talk about the state leaders, and I'll describe kind of what that means in a minute. But... Um, if you know much about the Bible, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are where the, considered to be the Gospels. That's where you really see Jesus' life and see his death and see his resurrection. And so we're kind of in the, the last uh, couple chapters of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, to, and what we did last time is we kind of interwove uh, the different parts. And today we're going to really look mostly at Luke, and then we're going to kind of pull in some of the other places. So we'll be in Luke chapter 23, uh, excuse me, Luke chapter 27 here. No, 23, 23. In just a minute, it doesn't go to 27. So it would be hard for us to be in Luke 27. So we'll be in Luke chapter 23. But we started off, like I said, two weeks ago, and we started talking about the Jewish leaders. And they're the ones who really kind of pushed it, that really thought that Jesus needed to be killed. And so they come alongside Jesus, and they, they um, go to these great efforts to see to it that Jesus be killed. And the efforts that they go to are pretty crazy. These, these religious people, they attempt murder. They, they attempt to stone Jesus on multiple occasions. They also um, uh, kind of commit many other crimes, including bribery, battery, kidnapping, perjury, forgery, defamation, and assault. And so it's these Jewish leaders, these religious people that are going to such great lengths to see to it that Jesus be killed. And they're doing it really, what we said last, uh, two weeks ago, is because they didn't believe Jesus. They, they rejected him as their king. They viewed Jesus as some sort of threat, and they really wanted a king of their own imagination. And the where we ended two weeks ago, the Jewish leaders wanted Jesus to die. They'd done all this different stuff, and they've brought Jesus to Pilate. And that's where we left off in the story. And so today, we're going to pick back up with Jesus standing before Pilate. And we're going to be talking about the, the state powers. Uh, so the religious leaders, right, they, they were over, um, they were the Jews. They were, you, in the past, there had been the whole nation of Israel. But over time, uh, the Jews were taken over by Assyria, then Babylon, the Greeks, and the Romans. And Kevin could explain that much better than I can because of the history side of it. So that's just the real quick, brief overview. But... Um, so they had the, the religious leaders, right? But then they also had the state powers, which is really Rome. And so um, over Rome was Tiberius Caesar. But obviously, if you're over a huge nation, you, you need other people to help. And so there was, um, in uh, Judea, there was a local governor named Pilate. So that's who Pilate is. And then there was um, a guy named Herod the Tetrarch who was really over Galilee. So we kind of have these two leaders that are over different areas under Rome, under Tiberius Caesar. And what we're going to really look at today as, as, as Jesus is standing there before Pilate and will then stand before Herod, we're going to really look at what do we see in Pilate and Herod? And what does that really teach us about us? And then ultimately, what does it teach us about Jesus? So that's kind of where we're going. And before we dive into our scripture for today, uh, let's, let's pray. Father God, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that uh, by going to your word, by reading, we can learn tremendous things about you. We can learn tremendous things about ourselves. And God, we can also see people in the story. So God, I pray that you open up our eyes to see um, Pilate Herod. You hope, open us up to see our own hearts. 
And most of all, you'll allow us to see you in a little bit more of a clear way today. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So again, Luke chapter 23, where we're going to be, if you want to open up to that or put it on your phone, we're going to be reading small sections, then talking about it, reading small sections, talking about it. So we'll be going through a lot of chapter 23 in Luke. So uh, we'll start off Luke chapter 23, verses 1 through 5, and this is what it says. Then the whole company of them, it's talking about the Jewish leaders. Again, this, these Jewish leaders were wanting to see to it that Jesus be killed. And so this whole company, this big group of Jewish leaders and officers, they bring Jesus before Pilate. And they began to accuse Jesus, saying, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to pay tribute to Caesar, in essence, forbidding them to pay taxes to Caesar, and saying that he himself is, a, is the Christ, a king. And Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered him saying, you have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea and Galilee, even to this place. And when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that he belonged to, to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who himself was in Jerusalem at that time. So really what's happening in this is they bring Jesus to Pilate. Pilate begins to question him, and he's asking him, like, are you a king? I mean, Jesus would not have looked like a king. He wouldn't have been dressed fancy. He, he's just kind of this poor guy that's associating with fishermen. And he says, are you a king? And, and Jesus says, you have said so. But they, they bring him to 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 Pilate at night. It's not like a typical hearing, right? It's not like a typical court scene. They bring him to Pilate's house. Pilate's standing there before him, and he, he doesn't really know what he should do. Like, there's this guy, this Jesus. He's, he's become a really big deal, and people are following him. In, in the Gospels, it says that it seemed like the whole, the whole um, world was going after him, and so now Pilate's standing before this guy. It seems like the whole world's going after this guy, but he doesn't seem too impressed by him, are you the king of the Jews? You've said so. And so he's kind of not sure what he should really do about Jesus. And then um, he kind of gets this idea. And when they say he's doing all this crazy stuff from here all the way to Galilee, Pilate's like, you know what? I'm not over Galilee. I'm going to send this Jesus to Herod. Let Herod make the decision. And what I think that you begin to see when you look at Pilate is he doesn't really want to make a decision about Jesus. So he passes him off to Herod. So then, now he's standing before Herod. So we have Jesus standing before Herod. But I think before we really dive into who this Herod is, we've got to understand a little bit more of the Bible. So there are a lot of places, if you read, you'll find someone named Herod. There's Herod the Tetrarch. There's Herod. And, and there's all these different names where it just says Herod, and it kind of gets confusing. So for a minute, let's, let's back up and be reminded of who this Herod that now Jesus is standing before. He stood before Pilate. Pilate passes him off. He doesn't really want to make a decision about Jesus. So now Jesus is standing before Herod. Now, if you remember back in Matthew, when Jesus is first born, the wise men go to the king, King Herod, and say, hey, we want to find um, this king of the Jews. And Herod's like, king of the Jews? What's going on here? And so he says, I'll tell you what, when you find this king of the Jews, come tell me that way I may go bow and worship. But the wise men realize that Herod doesn't actually want to go bow down and worship him. He wants to kill him. He doesn't want a rival king. And so um, the, the wise men go. They see Jesus. 
And then they decide not to go back and tell Herod. They, they take off the other way. Well, Herod finds out, where is this king of the Jews supposed to be born? And they say Bethlehem. So this Herod, not our Herod, King uh, Herod, Herod the Great, decides that he's going to see to it that any male two years old and younger in Bethlehem will be killed. So imagine a city that every two-year-old and down male is killed. That is Herod the Great. Herod, our Herod in our story, that's his dad. So Jesus is standing before this man whose father killed hundreds, thousands of male children to avoid this moment from happening. But what is so crazy to me is so often people try to stop God from working, but you really can't stop him working. And so now Herod is standing, Jesus standing before Herod, whose father killed all these babies. But if you continue to read on throughout the Bible, you'll see about a Herod named Archelaus. And this Herod is also one of the sons of Herod the Great. So Herod the Great, he dies and he leaves his kingdom to three different sons. Um, one's Philip, one's Antipas, and one's Archelaus. Now, um, what's crazy is, is that our Herod, Antipas, he, um, remember when John the Baptist comes on the scene? John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's preaching, he's preaching against the Pharisees, he's calling them a brood of vipers, he's kind of against the Jewish leaders, but he's also preaching against the state power, right? He's preaching against Herod Antipas, and the reason why he's preaching against Herod Antipas is Herod, the Herod in our story, he's decided that he wants to marry his brother's wife. And so in essence, he steals his brother's wife, um, Herodias, I think is how you say her name. And, and, and John the Baptist is saying, dude, it's not lawful for you to steal your brother's wife. Like, you can't do that. So he kind of makes an enemy out of this Herod who throws him in prison. But then through a series of circumstances, uh, Herodias decides that John the Baptist needs to be killed, and circumstances arise that has to happen. And, John, and Herod ends up saying yes to killing John the Baptist and beheads him. So now, again, Jesus is standing before this man whose father killed thousands of babies. He's standing before the man who had John the Baptist's head cut off. Pilate wanted nothing to do with him, sends him to Herod. Herod is there standing before Jesus, and this is what um, Luke tells us in Luke chapter 23, verse 8. Um, when Herod saw Jesus, he was glad. For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and he was hoping to see a sign done by him. So let me pause. Before any of this even, Herod was perplexed about this Jesus. Like people are talking all about Jesus and all this crazy stuff that's going on, all these miracles that he's doing. He's raised someone back to life. And so Herod's like, what is going on? How does this guy do this? This guy seems pretty impressive. But it also says that he actually thought that it was John the Baptist who was dead, who had been beheaded, that he had risen back as Jesus. So Herod cuts off John the Baptist's head, hears all this stuff about Jesus, thinks this has got to be John the Baptist who has risen. And there he is before him. He's super excited to see him, super excited to see maybe he'll do a miracle. So back into Luke chapter 23, Verse 9, so Herod questions him at length, but Jesus made no answer. 
the chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him, then arrayed him in splendid clothing and sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other on that very day, for before this they had been at enmity with each other. So Pilate sends him to Herod, and probably in a way, Herod probably feels like, wow, he's, he's showing like that I'm wise, and he's sending this guy over to me, that way I make the decision about him. And, and it kind of starts this friendship. So Herod, super excited to see him, wanting to see a sign, but Jesus doesn't give him a sign. And I think in that moment, Herod doesn't get to see God, see Jesus do something powerful, and he just like, he's not impressed by him. In fact, I think he sees it that ludicrous that this poor, meek, quiet guy could possibly be a king. I think Herod sees Jesus as a joke. And so he sees him as unworthy of his time and of his effort, so he has him mocked, and he sends him back to Pilate. So Jesus has stood before Pilate. Pilate doesn't want to make a decision about him, sends him off to Herod. Herod sees him as a joke, not worthy of his time and of his effort, and he mocks him and he sends him back. So if we pick back up in Luke chapter 23, Jesus has been before Pilate, then to Herod, now he's back before Pilate, and this is what our text tells us. Pilate then called together the chief priest and the rulers of the people, and he said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. After examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, and neither did Herod, because he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. Therefore, I will punish and release him. So at this point in time, Pilate gets him back the second time, and he's like, look, there's, there's nothing that this guy's guilty of. You're, you're giving all of these accusations against him, and he's not guilty, but because I'm such a nice guy, I'm going to beat him up real bad, and I'll give him back to you. Well, the Jews don't see this as, as good enough, and so they start saying that Jesus needs to be crucified. You've got to kill Jesus. You've got to kill him. You've got to kill him. And again, the Jewish leaders are pushing so hard for Jesus to be killed. And here we have Pilate. It's really uncertain of what he should do. And he comes up with this brilliant idea. See, it's, it's Passover. It's this big celebration. And every year at Passover, Pilate would allow one of the people who was guilty, who was in jail, to be released. And so Pilate comes up with this great idea. Well, let me put him up against Barabbas. We're going to talk about Barabbas next week. But Barabbas is this guy who's known for insurrection and murder. And what that means is this, is, is as I said, the Jewish nation had been taken over by Assyria, then Babylon, then the Greeks, and then by Rome. And so there was this big group of people that wanted to fight back. Let's fight back so that that way we can kind of have our own nation again. And so this group of people would be insurrectionists. They would be people who would battle against the government, if you will. And so they, they go after him. And in the process, this guy named Barabbas ends up murdering. He also is described as, as someone who's a robber. And there, he's got this notorious, uh, uh, infamous reputation. And so he... Um, Pilate decides, I'm going to put him up against Barabbas. Who are they going to rather have? This poor, pathetic, poor, just guy. Or will they want a murderer? Well, they're going to take this guy, right? That's what Pilate thinks. So Pilate decides, you know what, rather than me having to make a decision about this, he's kind of said, you know, he's, he's, he's not guilty, but he doesn't really want to come out and just boldly proclaim that he's innocent. And so he puts him up against Barabbas, but the people 
don't want Jesus. They want Barabbas released. And they begin demanding that he be released. It says in Luke 23, 23, that with, they were urgent demanding with loud cries that Jesus should be crucified. So up until this point, Pilate had tried to divert, send him to Herod. Herod had sent him back, seeing him as unworthy of his time and of his effort. And now Pilate tries to put him up against Barabbas, but it's not working. And he's backed into a corner as these people are chanting, crucify him, crucify him. In fact, uh, Luke 23, 20 and 21 says this, Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify him, crucify him. A third time, Jesus, excuse, a third time Pilate said to him, why, what evil has he done? I find no guilt deserving death, therefore I will punish and release him. So as this is going on, though, Pilate's wife sends word to him. And Pilate's wife says, Matthew 27 tells us, that have, she says, have nothing to do with this righteous man. I have suffered much of him in a dream. So Pilate is tucked into this corner, not sure what he should do. He thinks that Jesus is innocent. He's tried to divert. He's tried to put him up against a known criminal. And they're crowd is just chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And now Pilate's main job, the main reason why he's in this area is to keep peace. That's his whole, whole job. And so now what, what the word tells us is, is that there was a near riot. Matthew 27 says this, so when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning. So there's this near riot starting. There's all this commotion and his job is to keep peace. So he's not sure what he should do. And obviously he's been influenced by the crowd. The crowd's chanting, crucify him, crucify him. And he's, he's kind of being won over in a sense by, by the crowd. He's unsure what he should do. But then John chapter 19 tells us this, that from then on Pilate sought to release him, but the, Jew, the Jewish leaders, the Jews, they cried out, if you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar's. And so what has happened is, before he was kind of influenced by the crowd, but now his position is at risk. If the Jews go and tell Caesar, this guy's not doing things to keep the peace, Pilate's thinking they might come in and just take my position. And he feels like he's got a lot to lose. He's, got, he's governor, right? So he's probably got great status. He's probably got a pretty good lifestyle. He's got power. He's got control. Things are good for him. He's not going to want this to happen. And so Pilate influenced by the crowd and fearing the loss of his position, he decides this crowd is chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. There's a near riot. And so what Pilate does is he goes over, gets a basin of water, a bowl of water, and he washes his hands. And he says, his blood is not on my hands. But what really he wants to avoid any personal responsibility for the death of Jesus. But, but think about this. Who is it that ultimately is guilty of Jesus' murder? You could say it's the Jews because they're pushing so hard. You could also say it's Pilate because Pilate said, yes, crucify him. But he wants to wash his hands of it. He doesn't want to be seen as personally responsible for the death of Jesus. Matthew chapter 27 says that what happens next is this. Pilate has washed his hands and said, take them then, crucify them. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and they gathered the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him 
and they put a scarlet robe on him. Mark tells us that it was a purple cloak. But they take this Jesus, they strip him naked before a group of people, put a robe on him. They get a thorn, a crown of thorns, and they put it into his head. Have you ever like just been working out in the yard and reached down and pick up a thorn that you're not expecting? And it's amazing how something so small can hurt as bad as it does, but they take a crown of thorns and they push it into his head. From there, they take a reed and they put it in his hand. And they basically, what they're doing is they're dressing him up as if he was a king. They give him a crown, they give him a purple cloak, and they begin to kneel before him, mocking him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They think he's a joke. And so they're kind of just laughing, mocking him. And it goes on, it says, they spit on him, and they took the reed that they had put in his hand, they began hitting him in the head with it. And when they had mocked him for a while, they stripped him of the robe, put his own clothes back on him, and led him away to be crucified. John um, chapter 19 tells us that before this happened, he is flogged. He's scourged, is what some of the other texts say. Um, what flogging really is, is being whipped or beaten with some sort of sticks, reeds, if you will. And so what they would do, Rome had figured out how to do all these things in a much more uh, brutal way. And so they would, in essence, tie someone up. They'd be kind of bent over, tied, and then they would use a whip. But they didn't just use a whip. They, they got these big, long whips, and they would put lead balls into the um, end of the whip. They would also take broken bone pieces and put those all across the whip, all across the whip. And then they took Jesus and tied him up, put him over, and then they would be whipped with this whip that has bones, broken pieces of bones, and lead balls in it. This man who was ruled innocent is getting whipped. Now, the Jews had a command that you couldn't whip someone more than 40 times. It would be 39 would be what you would do. But the Romans, they didn't abide by that. So there are some that would estimate that he probably was hit with this whip over 100 times. I read this article. I don't know who, really who wrote it. Didn't really try to figure out, do I really believe this or not? But So take it for what it is. There was this article that said that from a variety of reasons, especially examining the shroud that had wrapped Jesus and that he had to have been whipped at least a hundred times. So there Jesus is, bent over, having been mocked, having been punched, having been spit on. Now he's flogged. Before that, he was stripped naked in front of a group of people. Now when you get flogged, the whip is long, right? And so you're bent over and most of the most of the, the hits will, will be concentrated on your back, but because the whip is pretty long, they could wrap around. So your, his back would have just been totally ripped open. But some of the pieces of the whip would probably whip around to his chest. So let's just say he only gets whipped 40 times. Bloody, having been beaten, having been ridiculed. Now he's being crucified as if he's a criminal. He's unable to carry his own cross, and so someone will help him carry this huge piece of wood up Golgotha Hill.
his back would have looked like he had stripes. Just lacerated open. Now he's carrying this rough piece of wood. And when we look at Pilate and Herod, again, we, we see Pilate tries to divert, doesn't want to make a decision about him. We see Herod, and he sees him as unworthy of his time and his effort, and he sends him back. And then we see Pilate, who's so influenced by the crowd, he wants to keep his position while avoiding any personal responsibility for the death of Jesus. And I don't know about you, but when I read through this story, I think about our culture. Can you imagine someone showing up to downtown Dayton, saying in the middle of the night, trying to get a judge to make a ruling on it? Well, no, that wouldn't happen, right? You'd have to wait like six months till your hearing. Be just sitting in jail until that happens. But this, all in one night, they take him, he's guilty. The, The judge, in essence, makes the decision that he's innocent, and yet he gets the punishment. That never happens, right? There's They're ruled guilty first, and then they're given over to their consequences. But here, he's innocent and yet given the consequences. And if you're like me, when you read this, you think, how in the world could the state power do this? Like, I mean, I can, even looking at the Jewish leaders, I can't can't imagine that they did what they did. But then you look at the the state powers, and how is it that they could do what they did? And, And if you look at it, you think, man, how unfair, how wrong, and how unbelievable this is. And then if you're like me, the next thought is this. I would never have done that. But I think if we really take a minute to look deep into our own hearts, deep into our own minds, and deep into our own lives, I think what we see is that we actually aren't that much different than Pilate and Herod. You see, Pilate's first uh, offense is that he tried to divert. He really didn't want to make a decision about Jesus. But how often is that us? I can tell you this, that Jesus first began to be a little bit intriguing to me when I was in about eighth grade. And a little bit beyond that, I would, I would go to church and I would hear these things about Jesus and I would be like, that sounds pretty cool. But I didn't really want to make any type of decision about him. Especially any type of decision that was going to change my life. And I think that what we oftentimes do is the same thing as Pilate, is we don't want to make a decision about Jesus. And ultimately what I think that we do is we kind of stand almost like we're doing a defensive slide. We're prepared that we could go either way. I could go tighter with Jesus or I can bolt away from him. I think that's just like what Jesus does or what Judas does. I think that we oftentimes don't want to make a decision about Jesus that affects our time. Like, I'm willing to say I follow Jesus. I'm willing to go to church on Sunday, maybe even do a house church through the week, but, but, but that's, that's kind of as far as I go. Or we're not really wanting to get to a position where we make a decision about Jesus that really affects our money. Right? I think that we, we talked about this as part of our, our house church this past week. It's almost like we have percentages in our life. And it's like, I'm willing to, to give Jesus 64.3% of my life, but I'm keeping the rest. I think it's really that we're not that much different than Pilate. We, we, we divert. We don't really want to make a decision about Jesus that affects us in a profound way. We're like the guy when Jesus says, follow me, and he says, first, let me bury my father. I think we so often can be guilty of the same thing that Pilate's guilty of, where we have one foot in and we have one foot out. We're, we live on the fence. Do I really go all in? think we keep Jesus at 
arm's length. Or we can be like Pilate. But I think, too, we see that Herod was super excited to see Jesus' miracles. And how, how, how much is that us? Like We're like, man, it'd be so cool to see God do something powerful. And you have a friend or you have a family member, something's going on in their life, and you're praying, God, heal him, heal him, heal him. But then when, when Herod didn't see God work in the way that he wanted him to work, he saw him as unworthy of his time. And how often is that, that we pray for something and God doesn't seem to answer it the way we want him to answer it in our timing. And what do we do? We begin to see him as unworthy of our time and of our effort. I can tell you, and I say it you know, with some regret, that there have been times where I've, I've truly thought this. I wouldn't have said it out loud, and now I'm going to, but where I get up pretty early in the morning to go read my Bible, and I'll get up and I'll go open it up and I begin to read. And there have been times where it's almost like what's going on in my heart and what I've said in my head is, God, if you don't show me something really cool from the Word, I'm not going to keep getting up in the mornings. Because I think that what we begin to do is we begin to do the same thing as Herod did. If you don't do what I want you to do, then I'm not going to see you as worthy of my time and of my effort. And I can tell you that that has been something that has definitely happened in my life is that I want to see him do something powerful, but when I don't, I see him as unworthy of our time and our effort. I think that we also see him as unworthy of our time and our effort. We just don't want to spend time with him. I'd rather do this. I'd rather do that. And we say we don't have time, but we find time to do so many other things. We too can be like Herod where we don't see Jesus as worthy of our time and our effort. And we may say, well, we, didn't, we don't mock him, but how often is it that when we live in a contrast to his word, I think what we really are doing is just making a mockery of Jesus. I think if we really are open and honest, we're not that different than Pilate. We're not that different than Herod. Pilate was influenced by the crowd. How often is it that we too are influenced by a crowd? We don't want to be viewed as that weird Jesus freak at work, and so we, we kind of one foot in, one foot out. We're around a group of people, and they're, they're kind of judging, and they're gossiping, and how easy is it for us to jump right into what they're doing? We are so easily influenced by the crowd. I mean, if you really think about most of us, the clothes that we wear, it's a conforming to a pattern of the world. Most of us, the words that we use, it's a conforming. A lot of us, the things that we choose to do, it's a conforming. We're so easily influenced by a crowd. And we read the text and we think, how could Pilate do that when we, we, we often do the same thing? But Pilate, um, he wasn't just influenced by the crowd. He wanted to keep his position, right? And how often is it that we want to, to keep our positions of comfort? God's calling me to something, but mm, I don't know. If I do that, i got to give up this. and This I really like. And so we, too, can be like Pilate. We want to keep our positions of comfort. How often is it we know that we have something that we're struggling in our lives? You know, the Word tells us that we should throw off everything that hinders us and the sin that so easily entangles us. And, and we know that this thing is hindering me in my relationship with the Lord. I know that this thing is sin. It's entangling me, but I'm not going to let go of it. Has that ever happened in your life? I don't want to let go of this. I can't let go of it. We can hold on to toxic relationships. We can hold on to anger. We can hold on to 
bitterness to shame to guilt. You see, Pilate wanted to keep his position. And man, so do we. I think when we read through this, we see that we're not that different than Pilate or Herod. Pilate, he wanted to avoid personal responsibility for the death of Jesus. That is so us. It's really easy to think, okay, Jesus died for sin. He died for those people. Rather than look at it, no, he died for me. It's easy to see that Jesus um, was going to be killed and that was because of sin. And it's really easy to look at it and be like, yeah, it's because of them. Rather than to say, no, it's because of me. We don't want to see ourselves as personally responsible for the death of Jesus. The fact is, though, is we are no different than Pilate and Herod. We're guilty. Who is it that was guilty that put Jesus on the cross? It was the Jewish leaders. It was Pilate. It was Herod. But it was you. It was me. That is why Jesus went to the cross. Because we are all sinners. We all fall short. We're all in need of a Savior. And although the craziest thing of this is this, is that Pilate tries to divert, so do we. Herod sees him as unworthy of his time and his effort, mocks him and sends him back, and so do we. Pilate is influenced by the crowd, wants to keep his position while avoiding personal responsibility for the death of Jesus, and so do we. And even though we are personally responsible, even though I am personally responsible for the death of Jesus, even though you are personally responsible for the death of Jesus, if when we begin to look at Jesus through this, we see something very different. You see, we try to divert because we don't want to make a decision about Jesus, but Jesus was so certain about us that he was all in. Jesus was so certain about us that the word says that he set his face toward Jerusalem. He knew what going to Jerusalem would mean, and he marched there. We waver, but Jesus was certain about us. It says that he went willingly like a sheep to the shearers. It says that he did so for the joy set before him. We waver, but Jesus does not. He had made a decision about us. You know, I, I, as I was thinking about this, I started thinking about, but wait, what about in the garden? Remember in the garden of Gethsemane, Jesus goes and he prays and he says, Lord, take this cup. If there's another way, let's do that. And I started thinking about this. I was like, was he wavering? But I don't think he in any way, shape, or form was wavering on us. I think what he was realizing is by taking the penalty that we deserved, he knew that there would be a moment where he would hear, where he would have to say, my God, why have you forsaken me? there'd be a moment where God would turn his back on him because of the punishment that he was taking on our behalf. See, we try to divert. We don't really want to make a decision about Jesus, but Jesus made a decision about us. Decision that brought him here. He was so sure, so certain, he did it for joy. And the word says it was by his stripes that we were healed. When we begin to realize that we are personally responsible, that you're responsible, that I'm responsible, we think of the fact of that in us, 
We see often Jesus as unworthy of our time and our effort. We mock him and we send him back. But Jesus saw us as so worthy of his time and of his effort that he left the comforts of heaven. He came to earth to a people who wanted nothing to do with him. He died the death of a criminal. He died it to give us the Holy Spirit as an inheritance, as a marker, so that when we would die, we would be with him forever that he would be a God who would never leave us or forsake us. The thing is, is we see Jesus as unworthy of our time and our effort, yet he saw us as so worthy of his time and of his effort that he gave his life. We often mock him and send him back, but what he did is he loved us to bring us back. When we look and we see that we are personally responsible that we, just like Pilate, just like Herod, were so easily influenced by the crowd. We want to keep our position while avoiding personal responsibility for the death of Jesus. That in Jesus, we see one who was not influenced by the crowd, but who loved the crowd. The crowd that had turned on him. At one point, it says that the whole city is going after him. It seems like the whole world is going after Jesus. And then like, you turn the page, and it's the same group who's chanting, crucify him, crucify him. We are influenced by the crowd, and yet Jesus has love for the crowd. It was the crowd who he said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We want to keep our position, but Jesus left his heavenly position to come to this earth. We want to live and believe in such a way that we're not personally responsible for the death of Jesus, and yet all of us are guilty. So what do we do with that? We need one who is innocent. And what's so crazy about this whole thing is that Pilate had ruled him innocent. He said, I find nothing that he is guilty of. You see, the, the Jews were saying that he had a demon, and what Pilate is saying is, no, no, that's not, that's not true. They were saying that he breaks the Sabbath, and what Pilate is saying, no, that's not true. He, he tells the people not to pay taxes. No, he's innocent of that. He's, he's not clean because he doesn't wash correctly. No, that's not true. He's not clean because he hangs out with these tax collectors and sinners. And Pilate's saying, no, he's innocent. He misleads the people. No, he's innocent. He's a blasphemer. No, he's speaking truth. He's the king of the Jews, and he is. He's the pure, spotless lamb who had no sin. The word tells us that he did not count equality with God something to be grasped. And that he emptied himself for the joy set before him. 2 Corinthians 5.21, which I, I, I use this verse all the time, but it's God made him who had no sin to be sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. When we look to the cross and we see Pilate and Herod, I think that we see ourselves in them. And we see that Jesus is the exact opposite. Because Jesus was certain. He was all in for you. He made a decision. He, he sees you as worthy of his time, of his energy, and of his life. Jesus loved you. He died for you in order to bring you back. He was willing to leave his heavenly position even though we are personally responsible 
for his death. See, when I first read through this story, I can't believe that the Jewish leaders would do what they did. When I first read through this story, I can't believe that the state powers would do what they did. But when I really stop and look at it, I can't believe that Jesus did what he did. My prayer and my hope is that as we read through the story, as we see what the Jewish leaders do, as we see what the state powers do, my hope and my prayer is that it amazes us what Jesus did for us. Let's pray. Father God, I, I confess to you that I so often don't want to make a decision that's going to affect my life. I don't want to be all in with you. I want to give you a percentage. And I, the higher that percentage gets, the, the harder, the tighter I clench my fist to the remaining part of my life. God, I confess to you that I so often would rather stay in the position that I'm in than get closer to you. God, I confess that my heart can be so hardened to you. God, I confess that I so easily influenced by the crowd. I want to pretend that I'm not personally responsible for your death, but God, your word tells us that all of us are sinners. And that the wages of sin is death. But God, when we, we look upon you, we see something so different. We see one that loves the crowd, one that comes and gives his life for the crowd, that leaves his position, his heavenly position to come to the earthly position in order to take us back. God, I pray that as we read through the story of the death of Jesus, that it strikes a chord in our heart, that it doesn't seem fair, it doesn't seem right, but that it strikes a chord for us to realize that you did it out of love for us. God, I pray that we would be overwhelmed that you would love us, those who just like Pilate, who just like Herod, are personally responsible for your death. God, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. God, may we be overwhelmed by both. In your awesome and precious name, amen.